Since 1948, there has been the rebirth of Israel. Israel now is an important factor in prophecies. We mentioned, alluded to it this morning. Where we are at at this point is this question. The question is, okay, what about the United States in relationship to Israel? What about our political leaders? How should we be looking and evaluating? What leaders do we want? Who should we be voting for? I think Israel plays a a choice in our decision come on Tuesday. How so? The question should be in in our thought is, what is the position of the Bible for Israel today? today and in the future. Other questions should be this. What should we think of Israel? How should we approach them? We understand, all of us in this room understands that Israel right now is a secular nation. They are not living under theocracy. They are not believers as a whole, as a nation. But what does the Bible say about that in the future? What does the Bible say we should respond to them? Has God given them up? That was a topic that God had put in the Bible. In fact, he gives three chapters to that very question in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are talking about God's view of Israel during the church age period. Here's where I think we need to be, okay? Two different thoughts that I want to share with you this evening. I think that we should consider Israel our friend nationally. I say that based upon Bible facts. Okay, the Bible facts, we'll get in Romans in a minute, but let me go through just a quick survey of the Bible and what the Bible says about Israel during the church age. Here's what we know about them as a nation. We know that they are clearly called God's chosen people. That this term is used multiple times in the Old Testament and, I think, repeated in the New Testament. What we find in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is this. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure, above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now watch his motivation. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of so many people. But because the Lord loves you, it goes on, he says, I took you out of the land of Egypt, out of love. Why is it God loved them? He chose to love them and to choose them. In fact, we go a little bit further. Hundreds of years later, we read in Isaiah, but you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, I have chosen. The descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. In Deuteronomy, another reference that he says doesn't even, doesn't call him chosen, but he uses another term. He found him in a desert land, in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as, what's this idea, apple of his eye? What, What does that say to you? Was, were they sweet to God or were they sour to God? Okay, they were very precious. That term is the apple of the eye is something very, very positive. He uses it at the end of the New Testament, our Old Testament. For thus says the Lord God, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. They are very special to God. As a nation, as a group of people, God cares for them so much that even in the New Testament era, watch the terms he uses. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies. That is, they were opposed to the gospel. But concerning Concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In fact, he repeats that another spot where he says, Who are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of God, the service of God, and the promises? This is during the church age. This is when we as a church, Gentiles, are being saved. When it is formulated that now we are not dealing with just the nation of Israel, but there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. God says they still hold a 
a very special place in my heart. Has God cast them off? Hmm. We go back to another thought here. Not only are they God's chosen people, but another reason we should be friendly towards them as a nation internationally is because this is what God said he would do if we want his blessings. If we want his blessings, we must be favorable towards Israel as a nation. How do I know that? God said in the Old Testament, I will make you a great nation. I will bless them that bless thee, I will curse them that curse thee. And so God has done this all through the ages. And this isn't the only time. He repeats this in the prophets again, where he says two other times, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And we know that not all people have blessed the Israelites. We know that even though God made that promise and repeated it to Isaac and then repeated it again to Jacob years later, we know that God's people have been persecuted. We know that they have been holocausted. We know that they have been put in ghettos. ghettos. We know that there were pogroms in Russia that were against them. We know the Spanish Inquisition targeted the Jews more than any other group. We know that's through history. We understand that. But we understand also through history that there are times that when people persecuted and peoples went after them, the the tables were often turned. Why? I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. The story of out of the book of Esther. You all know it if you've read your Bible. Did Haman Haman think he had the, the Jews to, to ready to be destroyed? Absolutely. But by the end of the story, who is hanging on the gallows? Haman himself. If the tables were turned, why is that? I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And so we can go through history. We, can, we could take the time, and I don't want to tonight. I don't want to do history. I've bored you already at times with history. But we could go through and we could talk about major, major empires. We could talk about their story, those who did not bless Israel but cursed Israel. These empires, at the zenith of their power, they were brought down. Is there better, any better illustration than Egypt? When God just destroyed that country because of their attitude. You have the same thing happening with Assyria, Medo-Persia, Babylon. You go further in history, you've got Rome, you've got Spain, you've got Germany, who at their zenith of their times, even in modern history, all of a sudden, there is, I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. You've got the USSR, who had a strong anti-Jewish program, and they were, they were meted out difficulties because of that. Great Britain's empire, and for a period of time, they were not favored and they lost many of their lands. What about the United States? We know that the position of the United States historically since 1948 has been very, very pro-strong ally to Israel. Has that been the policy of this current administration? No. No, it is not. And we who know the scriptures, we should be taking heed and taking warning that says, God said, I will bless them that bless thee, I will Curse them that curse thee. So that has some, some bearing. Now, there was a book, and I totally forgot to bring the book. It's in my office. I'll bring it down to the fellowship afterwards. And this book gives all kinds of, it's dated. It's about five years old. And it gives all kinds of illustrations. I just grabbed a couple of them. The book is filled with illustrations of recent history about certain things that happened. And some of you know this. Some of you have read this. You know that back in the 90s, there was the perfect storm. It became a movie. It became all these issues. But what you don't maybe remember is right at that time, that very same time period, time frame within a week or two, there was a Madrid conference organized by the U.S. and Russia to discuss the land rights. The purpose of it was to get Israel to give up more of its land. Now, if you were to go back into a chart and look at the land that God promised Israel, it's 
kind of huge. You look at the land that they got a number of years ago, it's much smaller. You look at the land that the United States is saying they should retain, it's even smaller yet. When the United States or other countries are saying that we are not going to stand by Israel and we're going to have them give land back, what always strikes me kind of odd is this. They are supposed to give land to the Palestinians to have, which, you know, they're supposed to be, you know, to be cooperative and let the Palestinians have major portions of the land that are surrounding Jerusalem. Where are all the Palestinian Arab countries, their relatives, where are they saying, we'll provide land for you? Not a one of them does. Not, a, not, not another one of the Arab countries around there will say, we'll take the Palestinians and give them homeland. Not at all. For the last couple decades, it has been, Israel, you need to give up your land. And by the way, do those Arab countries have money to afford giving land to the Palestinians? But none of them do. None of them do. The Jews have to give up. And the United States is on the side in recent history, has been on the side of give it up, give it up. And when we get involved to say that, we have things happen. It's coincidental, I'm sure. Okay, let's, let's jump another one. Let's go back a little bit in history. During, right before German, uh, German War, okay, right before World War II, there was Bund groups in the United States. There were pro-German individuals who thought we should fight with Hitler. They had these Bund groups that would get together. And one of the largest groups that they gathered right in this time period was these anti-Semitic groups. That was a lot of their mantra, a lot of their chant. And one of them gathered on New, uh, New York's Long Island. And when they had one of their gatherings, when they did this, they had 40,000 people in attendance. Well, right after they got done with that, within a couple of weeks after that, all of a sudden, there is what is called a hurricane in the past called the Long Island Express. It came right through there. In fact, it went right through that camp, and it destroyed what they call Adolf Hitler Street. Okay? Oh, it's just a coincidence that these things go together. Let's do another coincidence. 2002. George Bush is speaking to the United, States, United Nations. He's saying that we need peace. Israel needs to withdraw and leave the Palestinians. And he's speaking about this. And all of a sudden that week, Hurricane Andrew comes along. We can go to other different spots and other different stories and show you how it happened. Republican Party, last time they were meeting prior to this election. When they were meeting down in the Tampa era, all of a sudden they took as part of their platform, they took a pro-Palestinian state issue against the Israelites. Give up some of your land. All of a sudden, Hurricane Isaac. It's not just hurricanes. If you read this book, you'll find multiple different things, economically, etc., etc., etc. I fear... That if the United States maintains its present course, that it is not favorable to, United, to, to uh, Israel, I fear that we will suffer more of, I will bless them that bless you, but curse them that curse you. Why is that? Because the people of Israel enjoy a unique fellowship and protection of God. God said it all the way before they were even a nation, before they were formed, before they were put together in the land. Even before they were gathered into the land, even before they had a king, we're talking a couple thousand years before that time, God is giving them this promise, and he is saying, a couple hundred years, he is giving this promise and saying to them, I will bless them that bless thee. Let me give you another reason why we should be friendly. We should be friendly because we are debtors to Israel. The New Testament in Romans chapter 15 verse 27 makes this comment. It says, it pleased them indeed. And they are their debtors. It's talking about Gentiles helping out the Jews. For if the Gentiles have been partaker of their spiritual things, 
Then he goes on, their duty is also to minister to them, the Jews, in material things. Read through the text. It's talking about Gentiles, relationship to Jews, that the Gentiles have been our debtors because of the spiritual things provided by the Jews. Therefore, we should respond materially, physically, in providing and helping them and supporting them. Now, what kind of things do we owe to the Jews? When do we look, how did they help us spiritually? There's just several right off the top of the head. Right off the top of your head, you are sitting there and you're holding one of those benefits. The word of God came through the Jews. Did it not? Is this a debate? Where, who got the Old Testament? Which group of people? It's the Jews. Who was the group that, got, that wrote down most of the New Testament? What were they? Most of them were Jewish individuals. Okay, do I understand that there's Gentiles like Luke involved? Sure. But most of it came, the word of God came through the Jewish peoples. The word of God was spread by the Jewish people in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. As well, not only do we owe them the word of God that came through them, through many of their prophets, through many of their teachers, but also the Savior. Didn't the Savior choose to come through the Jewish nation? Yes, no. Okay, it's a truism. We can't deny it. Okay, we have the Savior. We also have the very first church bodies. We have the very first missionaries are coming from that region of the world where the Jews were, were predominant in those areas. In fact, here's what Jesus said. Jesus made it clear salvation is of the Jews. That they were the primary people group through whom he brought the salvation message, news, and means to the human race. We owe them something. We owe them, we are debtors, according to Romans 15, verse 27, that we have that obligation. There's another reason. God's not finished with them yet. God is not done with the Jewish people. How do I know that? Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, you have it opened, and that is the whole point of discussion. Now, I'm not going to go through all three chapters, and Jonathan Weaver had this Sunday school class. I'm sure that you can get much better teaching from what he did in his class. Let me just highlight a few thoughts. In Romans, Paul has been talking about, in chapters 9 and 10, about the Jews. He's talked about how they have struggled, they have rejected the gospel, he is burdened for them, he wishes that he were accursed that they would come to salvation why is it they haven't come to salvation and he talks about that towards the end of chapter 10 he makes several comments about where they're at spiritually he says verse 16 of chapter 10 they have not all obeyed the gospel he says down in verse 18 they have they not heard yes verily their sound went into all the world their words unto the ends of the world but I say I but I say did not Israel know and he says yeah they knew. They knew. Isaiah was very bold, verse 20. But he says in verse 21, But to Israel he says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. So he's described them as individuals who heard the word of God. They even had the Messiah. They even rejoiced when he came marching into the city. But several days later, instead of crying Hosanna, what do they cry? Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And so he says, then I sent the apostles. In Pentecost, they stand up and they preach. What happened to the apostles? They get persecuted. Now, some have believed, but as a whole, they become the enemies of the gospel. So that wherever the gospel is being spread through the book of Acts, the first place they go is always the synagogue. But over a period of time, the persecution is intensifying from the Jews to the Christians. Now, the question has to come up to a church in Rome that has a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. The question has got to be, 
has God finished with the Jews? In fact, look at chapter 11, verse 1. He says this, he asks this question. I say, hath God cast away his people? Go down to verse 11. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall away permanently is the idea. Have they stumbled so that they are fallen over the cliff never to be rescued again? Now go back to chapter 11 verse 1. What is the response to the question? I say, hath God cast away his people? What's the response? God forbid. One of the six times it shows up here in the book of Romans, it's a very strong, very strong statement that says, absolutely not. Go to verse 11. Have they stumbled that they should fall? What's the response? God, God forbid. God forbid. In other words, God is, is not done with these people. God has not finished with these people. In fact, he is going to go through chapter 11, and this is the gist of the entire chapter. The entire chapter is, God isn't done with them, and I'm going to give you reasons why. Proofs why. Peter, uh, Paul writes. He says, I can prove that God is not done with them. Now, I'm not going to go verse by verse. There's too much. It's a very difficult text. Let me just highlight the main thoughts. Here's the proofs that he offers through the chapter, and there's all kinds of nuances as you go through, but let me just highlight the main ideas. Paul says, I'm proof. I'm proof God is not done with the Jews. Look at verse 1. I say, hath God cast away his, his people? God forbid. I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't cast me away. God did not cast the people away that he foreknew, that he, that he knew that they would respond to the gospel. He's extended it to me. And so Paul's making it clear. Here I am. I'm proof that God's not done with all the Jewish people because as a whole they've rejected. Then he gives another illustration. He says, and he takes them all the way back in the Old Testament, he says, what about the scripture and Elijah? And he tells the story about how Elijah went preaching to the people of Israel. And as a whole, they had rejected. It was the northern kingdom. They had rejected. And Elijah has the contest with the different priests of Baal. And he says, well, let's build an altar. We'll build it there. We'll douse it with water. You guys, you do your thing. You see if you can call down fire from heaven. And it goes on all day. Elijah builds his altar. That one he douses with water. And then he calls out, the fire comes down from heaven. You remember that story. Okay, And the people say, what do we do? What do we do? He says, okay, let's get rid of all these false priests. They slay 750 of them. And there seems to be revival breaking out. Queen Jezebel doesn't like it. So Queen Jezebel sends a note to Elijah and says, tomorrow you'll be as one of those prophets. Not the assassins, but the note gets Elijah to run. Elijah runs into the wilderness, and when he's in the wilderness and in the cave, he starts crying after God comes and speaks and says, what are you doing here? Remember, that's the cave where there's the fire, the wind, the earthquake. But then God comes in a what? Still, small voice. Okay, and the voice says, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I have been faithful to you. I'm your and da 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 and I, and here I am. You've tr let this happen to me after all that I have done. And he makes this statement. In the three different times God comes to him, he says, I and I alone am the only one left. And God says to him, that's not true. Do you remember what God tells him? I have 7,000 more. And God tells him that I have 7,000 that have not, have not apostatized. He calls them the remnant. Watch what he says here. In Romans 11, he says, uh, he's quoting Isaiah in verse 3. Lord, they have killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars. I am left alone and they seek my life. But what said the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 
7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a what? There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And it is by grace, not of, not of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no good. His point is, God has a remnant. God is not done with Israel. He is working through the group of Jews who had come to belief. And he will work with them. He has not cast them off. And he will take of that remnant and rebuild them as a nation of total believers in the future. Now, he goes on and he makes a third statement or a third proof. That third proof is you. It is the Gentiles. And through the bulk of this chapter, he's talking about you. He's talking about me. Gentiles who have come to faith. And he's talking about them. And in verse 11, we'll jump down. He says, I say, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, their temporary fall, salvation is come unto what group of people? The Gentiles. For what reason? Because God has rejected the Jews? That he said, I'm no longer going to reach them. I'm not going to deal with them. They're done. They can't be saved. And as a people, I'm going to be destroying them. He doesn't say that. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, I have turned to the Gentiles. And I'm going to work through the Gentiles. And we know he's going to work until the fullness of the Gentiles is done. But he says, I'm doing it for a reason. What is the reason that he's taking the gospel to us? What's it say? To provoke them to jealousy. He's not done with them. He wants them to respond. What is the witness that God uses to help them to see the truth now? Gentiles. The salvation of the Gentiles. What he is saying is if Jews today were to sit down and watch and see how you worship, how you conduct yourself, God would use your witness in a special way to provoke them to a point of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, how come you're so blessed of God? Because many of the Jews think they are the only ones. And he, and in pride, we're, we're so chosen, God never has to struggle with us. And they would see the grace of God in your life. And that's to provoke them to jealousy. Why? God still wants to see them saved. He doesn't want to be done with them. He wants to use your witness to them. So he makes it very clear. And then what he does in this chapter is he goes on and he uses a couple different illustrations. And you're part of the illustration. He's going to give two of them from the Old Testament. Two different illustrations that the Jews would understand thoroughly. And those illustrations are very simple. One of them is a sacrifice. He mentions it down in verse 16. He says, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump also is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. The first fruit is an offering that they would give, according to Numbers 24. They would bring the first fruit of their crops, and they would offer it. Now all their crops are belonging to God. It's like you're tied. You give, but the, you know, we all know it belongs to God. But we know as we give, God's going to provide and take care of the rest of our needs. As they gave the first fruits, they were indicative of more to follow. They believed that God would say there's more to follow. There was the promise that there'd be more to follow. If the first Jews in the beginning of this whole embarking, working with the patriarchs, if some of them came to salvation, then shouldn't? More of them come to salvation in time if they were the first fruits. 
He's indicating God will bring others to salvation. In fact, he uses another illustration. And the illustration that he's using is an olive tree. He explains it in depth. I'm just going to do it quickly for sake of time. He says that what this tree identifies is this. There's a tree that has roots to it. This tree is the patriarchs, the Abraham, the Isaac, the Jacobs, who came to belief, who were justified by faith. Galatians chapter 2. That they came and many of the Old Testament saints came to believe. But as this nation grew, some of the branches were broken off. They, they broke off. They did not bear the same fruit. They died off. They withered off. And they were broken branches. The unbelieving Jews. The Christ rejectors. And in their place where there were spots, God did something into this tree. He did, do you remember what it is? He grafted in. He grafted in another type of tree. It was the Gentiles. The believing Gentiles are grafted into this growing body and into this growing, uh, this growing family of believers. And they're grafted in. And he's writing to the Gentiles and saying, don't you be pompous. Don't you be proud that, oh, we've replaced you broken branches. Nah, 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 nah. We're better than you. He says, don't say that. Don't say that. Because God's not done with them yet. There are going to be other branches that will grow in the future because out of the root, that's this root, this tree that is giving you life, it is also going to produce life that is comparable, that is kind like kind as the roots in the base. It is going to be believing Jews in the future. There is going to be a remnant of the Jews that will come to faith. He talks about that in verse 24, that they are going to come, even though they, are, they have been a replacement. You guys can be replaced as well, who are grafted in, but there's going to be a remnant. In fact, let me take you to another, another comment here. Paul has said, here's proofs. It's my own life. Here's proof. It is Elijah. Here's proof. It is the Gentiles. Here's proof. It's the patriarchs. Here's proof. God's promises. Look at what he says very simply down in verse 26. In verse 26, he just highlights as he's closing this whole discussion down and saying that God is not done with him yet. He says at the beginning of verse 26, and so all Israel, what's your Bible read? Shall be Saved. That's what God promises. Look at what he says. I need to back up. In verse 25, he says, The blindness in part is happening to Israel until what? The fullness of the Gentiles become in. Once the fullness of the Gentiles is done, then what's going to happen? All Israel shall be saved. In other words, there's going to be end to the Gentiles and Gentiles only. There's going to be all Israel getting saved. He even makes the statement. Look at verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now God has made covenant with Israel. He said that he would save them. In fact, not only did he make one covenant, but he made it four times. He said that I will redeem you, I will rescue you, I will give you a king, I will give you a land. And then he talked about not only those four covenants that were in place all the way through the old, the, uh, up until the end of the Old Testament, he said that I'm going to introduce a new covenant. And when I introduce that new covenant, that means I will redeem you in time. And I will give the Holy Spirit and he shall live where? In the hearts of all who believe. Do you remember when Jesus introduced this new covenant? Do you remember when he inaugurated it? A communion service. This is the New Testament in my blood. New covenant. New covenant. 
And so it's a covenant, not just for us, but this is a covenant for the Jews as well, but the preceding four were for the Jews in particular. That he says, I'm making covenants. I have not forgotten the covenants, God says. He says, I have not rejected them. I'm going to fulfill these covenants in time. We're in an we're in, the, we're in a parenthesis, we're in a lapse, that I'm not going to actively bring about the fullness of those covenants until later on, but it will happen. They will get their land. I am not done with them. Is God cast them off? God forbid. If God hasn't rejected the Jews who have rejected him, then neither should we. By the way, I was thinking when I, about this very thought when I was reading that letter at the beginning of the service. If God is able to forgive a fallen servant of the Lord, then we should too. Right? Okay? We should forgive even as Christ has forgiven us. And so, we have this thought. Now, let me, let me close with this. Okay? We said we should be friends to Israel as a nation. Let me, uh, let me shift gears now. That should impact how you vote. I think there's another impacting message right here in this text. When it talks about the Jews. It's in the follow-up verses. After he's done talking about the Jews, he goes to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And we read, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you do something. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. Here's my point. The Jews provide motivation for us. Spiritual motivation. Not only should we be friendly for them, we should take and look and see God dealing with them in the past and in now and in the future should motivate us to serve the Lord. How so? He says, I beseech you, therefore. Something that has gone on before has motivated Paul to plead with these people, to beseech these people that they should make sacrifice to God. That this is their reasonable worship. You Gentiles who gather in the, in the church setting, you need to give the Lord your life to honor him. You need to worship him. You need to serve him. Why? Because the therefore. Because what he has just talked about. Is he talking all the way back to chapter 1? Two, three, that talk about sin. Is he talking about chapters four, five, that talk about salvation? Is he talking about chapters six, seven, and eight, that talk about sanctification? Chapter eight, about security and the Holy Spirit. Is that what he's talking about? Possibly. But look at the immediate context. The immediate ending of chapter 11. In the immediate ending, after he's talking about Israel, he's winding it down. And he's saying, I have not, I have, God has not rejected them. Instead, Paul is going to mention several really outstanding acts of God Almighty seen. The, the, the person of God, the working of God seen through the Jewish people. He talks about God's faithfulness. That God has given a covenant that has been in the past. These people have rejected. They have not fulfilled their part. But he says in verse 27 that he says, this is my covenant unto them. I am going to fulfill it. I will forgive their sins. They have not been faithful to me, but I'm going to keep my word. Isn't that a challenge to us, an encouragement to us, that we serve a God who keeps his word no matter what? Even if we don't hold up our end, God holds up his end of a bargain. That is a faithful God. That is a God that we can trust. That is a God that we can serve, that we can present our bodies as a living sacrifice because he is faithful. He does not lie. He does not bail out on us. He is a good, faithful God. Look what else he talks about. He talks about how God is gracious. Look at verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are your enemies. 
The Jews right now are enemies to the gospel. We understand that. That's, that was happening in the book of Acts. But as touching election, they are beloved. They are beloved for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God is not going to pull back his spiritual gifts. God is not going to pull back his grace to the Jews. He will. He will forgive their sins. He will, without repentance, without changing his mind, he will forgive and cleanse them from every one of their sins. God's grace, seen where he goes on, talks more about in times past, they have not believed yet, have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so, these also now not believe, but through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. God will be gracious to them. If God is gracious to them and kind to them and forgiving to them, then take heart. God is kind and forgiving to us. We ought to give him our bodies, even if we failed. Why? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from... That's grace. It's a motivation here. His security. Look at verse 29 where he says, the gifts are calling, they're without repentance. God, they're, they're secure. They're secure in their, in their position as a chosen nation. You are secure in your position as a child of God. It is not going to be taken away. You cannot lose it. Therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable worship to a God who is faithful, to a God who is gracious, who, for, who a God who will keep you, who a God who is so wise. He, verse 33 is a song. It's a doxology. It's a, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. We can't figure out why God does what he does, but I'm so glad he does. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who did God go for counsel? The answer is nobody. Who hath first given to him that it shall be recompensed? God doesn't owe anybody. God, out of love, chose you saved you. God, out of grace, made the gospel possible for us to respond. What a gracious God. How do we respond? I, pre I beg you, I plead with you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable. Why? Because of his faithfulness, because of his grace, because of his security, because of the way he sovereignly works, he says, for of him, through him, to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he says, these people, they, they make me break out in song. When I see what God has done with them, what God has promised them, I just want to rejoice. Well, let's do that. Let's prepare for communion.